yeah, there certainly was a was a time during the pandemic where people were questioning, is it going to die? And when you talk to all of the people, you see all the people in this documentary, despite the struggles, they are vested in their drive-ins and in this industry, and they're very, you know, pushing through. They're very confident um, that they're going to have a good season and that this is going to stay alive. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the world of theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by my colleagues and co-hosts, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, chief analyst at Box Office Pro. In this week's episode, Rebecca Polly speaks with April Wright, the director of Back to the Drive-In, a new documentary about the drive-in movie-going experience. That's going to be coming up in our feature segment. And in our new segment, we've got Sean Robbins talking to us on a 4th of July box office recap, and he will also preview the opening weekend of Thor, Love and Thunder. Followed by the editorial director of Box Office Studios, Russ Fisher, who's going to be talking about the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and what audiences can expect in the coming months. So let's get right into it. Sean, Rebecca, so happy to be back with you guys. Did you guys go to the movies this weekend? Um, I did, actually. I um, I saw the Telugu film R uh, for the second time. I saw it, I think, last week. Um, and it's just a three-hour, just completely wacky, insane Bollywood title. So um, I, I, I was telling my, my boyfriend about it and a friend of mine, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's on Netflix now. I'm like, no, you got to see it with the crowd, and we're going. Where, where did you see it? Which, which theater did you go to? Uh, IFC Center. Oh, and I love that just, IFC Center. It's just an amazing, it's, it's, it's so much movie. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. I still have to catch up on that one. Sean, you went to the movies as well this weekend? Yeah, I finally caught Maverick again. That's my it's only my second time. It's it's kind of one I've been wanting to go see again several times, but I've been trying to catch up on other stuff and I'm building up on my PLF experiences. So the first time was in Dolby, this weekend was in Screen X. And now I'm aiming to get in one of those 10 o'clock IMAX shows unless, you know, maybe IMAX can bring it back for a, a full day at some point at the, at the end of summer. <laughs> You have to think it's going to happen, and we're going to talk about that uh, end of summer slate in a little bit. But a quick shout out to the theater you saw that in. You're in Tennessee. Sean, what theater did you see Maverick for the second time in? Uh, that was the Regal Hollywood. Oh, nice. It's uh, good to hear that they've got a screen X. You know, these PLF formats, they, they keep on expanding to, to so many sites. It's it's cool to hear. A quick news tidbit before we jump right into the July 4th uh, weekend recap at the box office. Did you guys see the news that we reported last week? Cinepolis USA bringing in the first IMAX dine-in cinema. Uh, and it's going to be opening in spring 2023 in Los Angeles. It's over on our, our website, boxofficepro.com. We have a picture. It looks awesome, guys. Imagine just a whole dine-in experience with a massive IMAX screen. We're getting to that premium on top of premium on top of premium. I wonder where this whole thing is headed. It looks amazing, though. I, I, I do feel kind of bad for the runners who are running around this gigantic IMAX theater <laughs> and literally put their food. I, I imagine they'll be getting their steps in every single shift. Talking about runners and, and dine-ins, I actually emerged from COVID. It took me like a week and a half. And uh, as soon as I tested negative, my first stop was the movies. I went down to the Alamo Draft House in lower Manhattan. 
I saw official competition, uh, the Spanish-Argentinian uh, co-production with uh, Antonio Banderas and uh, Penelope Cruz. Wonderful movie. I had a very large milkshake. Nothing brings you back to life like drinking <laughs> a milkshake at the movies in the middle of summer. Shout out to Paxlovid. Thank you for getting me through that uh, scary week last week. And uh, another shout out to the Alamo Draft House and their wonderful milkshake. It was the, the final part of uh, coming out of COVID finally. But let's talk about uh, the movies. We've got a packed July 4th weekend at the box office. Sean, Minions, The Rice of Gru, opening to $125 million at the domestic box office over the four-day frame. What can we say about this title? Is it fair to say this one exceeded expectations? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This is above and beyond, I think, what we really could have hoped for or expected, especially just a few weeks removed from Lightyear and, and some of those lingering questions coming back up again about families going back to the theater. This weekend ended that effectively. This is an opening even higher than the first Minions movie in 2015. And, you know, really just a testament to Universal's decision to delay this movie two years ago and keep it committed to theaters because this is that big welcome back for parents and kids that we haven't seen since 2019. Now, Sean, speaking of different demographics and how they relate to this movie, what the heck have I been seeing on on, uh, Twitter and social media (laughs) with this gentle Minions hashtag? This is one of those things that you just, we, we really can never foresee until it happens. And I think it's maybe a small part of the reason why this movie exceeded expectations so much. It was going to blow up, I think, regardless. But the gentle minions trend on TikTok is essentially a group of generally speaking teenage boys dressed up in you know, suits, formal attire, and going to see the movie in theaters. Well, because they grew up with the original franchise, right? So it's it. like, yeah. they want to see the new it's, one. It's like, a, to me, it seems like a very positive kind of way of going out. Universal themselves have endorsed it. They they tweeted about it over the weekend. Uh, it's just one of those kind of fun little things that came out of this movie. Like the eventizing of, of going to the movies, them dressing up, going as a group, you know, doing it for that social kind of clout. Though I, I've seen um, a few clips and videos of how trashed some of these groups left the theaters. So, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> There's that unfortunate side of it. Yep, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a great opening weekend here for the Minions. You mentioned uh, this being an overperformance when we look at how family films and animated titles have performed at the box office, uh, really since the reopening. This movie, guys, outgrossed the first three weeks of Lightyear. It's a fantastic result. Moving forward, Sean, what can we expect from Minions, uh, The Rise of Crew? Is this movie going to hold in a way that can take it close to the $300 million mark domestic? I would think so. Yeah, I think with this kind of opening, we can definitely look at that as a benchmark now. The last Minions movie was a little bit more front-loaded than the Despicable Me films, which is an interesting trend in itself. And then we factor in this TikTok thing. Maybe that added some business that will kind of die out once the the fad of it is over. But either way, this is still a huge franchise. This is a comedy. It's for everybody. The demographics on this were were nearly evenly split across the board. 50-50 male and female, 52% mothers, 51% girls under 13 versus 49 for boys. You don't really get much more evenly split than that. The only thing is we have a Marvel movie. We have two more animated movies coming out before the end of the month. So that there will be a little bit of competition there, but this should still overall have, have some, have some runway through the end of summer. 
Those and two kids was, movies, though, are Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank, and uh, the mm -hmm. DC League of Super Pets, which they both seem kind of more directly marketed to kids versus the more kind of wider appeal. Of you know what? Yeah. I've actually seen footage of the DC League of Super, Super Pets uh, over at Cine Europe for the last couple of years. There might be something to that title. Sean, I know your forecasting for that one has been creeping up bit by bit over the last couple of years. Yeah, that is a it's an interesting one. And as we start to see more marketing for it, I, I think there's a lot of potential on paper. It, it, this is a lesson learned uh, from Minions and Lightyear. Parents and kids are looking for those those comedic elements in animated movies. And when you have Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson leading a movie that's based on DC characters and also has pets, I see a lot of potential on paper there, especially opening at the end of July. That's far enough removed from Minions. And it's really the last big animated movie that will be coming out for several months. Uh, so I, I like where it's at right now. Never doubt the appeal of talking animals at the global <laughs> box office. But let's actually go a little bit further into the schedule, Sean, because coming up, we've got the opening of the next installment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Thor, Love and Thunder, opening this weekend. What are the expectations for this title? What's up? Yeah. What's, what's your Thorcast here? Thorcast. That's, that's oh, what we're man. going with. I can't believe you slipped that in. <laughs> Sorry, we're not going to edit that out either. We're, we're doing so, a, a, a Thorcast. The box office Thorcast. Let's go for that's it. That's great. Yeah. I, you know what? I think I think it should open higher than Ragnarok, and I think it, it would be tough to compare it to something like Doctor Strange when that opened earlier in the summer to 187 million. There was a lot more of an event kind of marketing appeal to that with the idea of setting up the multiverse and that being the next big storyline for Marvel. Thor seems to be a little bit more self-contained, but on the plus side, I, I think there's a strong argument, especially among Marvel fans that this is not only one of the last remaining original characters from that original Avengers group, but also a character that has emerged from the last few films he's been in as one of the stronger story arcs and ca character development. And Taika Waititi and, and Ragnarok and what they did for him and what Infinity War and Endgame what those writers did have really kind of brought Thor to the forefront. Whereas 10 years ago, there were, you know, a lot of assumptions and kind of assessments that he was more of a middle tier character. He's, he's absolutely a tier now and it's a comedy. And I think again, that's what a lot of people just want to escape and go to the theater right now. So combining that with, with the Marvel brand and with Thor, uh, with the goodwill there, you know, this is probably, I, I think somewhat safely we can probably expect something over 140 million give or take at the domestic opening uh maybe a little higher let's look forward to the summer sean because i'm getting a little bit concerned once we get out of the month of july once we get into august things look shaky here from the release calendar what happens after this uh by all means positive opening weekend we're all expecting for Thor, Love and Th Thunder. Is it just the uh, holdover festival for a couple of weekends before uh, Jordan Peele comes out with, with Nope? Yeah, you know, I think we're, we're getting to that point now where we have to expect some stabilizing, maybe some slowdown to put it maybe a, a bit more objectively. Nope looks like it will do pretty well, but it will be really reception dependent as many horror films are. I think where the crawdad scene could be a solid counter programmer and, and draw some some moviegoers through the end of summer. We mentioned DC League of Super Pets. Bullet Train will do well, but after that, you know, it looks kind of like we what we used to expect from late summer box office calendars that mid to late August pre Labor Day that just allows time for the holdovers to to live there. 
and then we get into September and that will be the big question. You know, we, we, we're going to have to look at something like Salem's lot or the woman King or don't worry, darling or bros all releasing in September, all with some sleeper to break out potential, but most of which except for Salem's lot going to be viewed as original movies without any built in audience. Looking at these upcoming films as you track kind of the, the marketing campaigns and pre-sales where applicable, uh, what upcoming films are kind of going up in your forecasting in which maybe you're trending more downwards? Yeah, I think Super Pets is the big standout. That that one's looking stronger to me so far, especially as we get a better idea of, of how Warner Brothers wants to market that. I don't see a lot of movies moving down at the moment just because we have seen such a momentum build over the last few weeks that's showing us more of demographics coming back. Uh, but there are certainly movies with more modest expectations. I would say Pause of Fury is top of mind there. That opens essentially one week from now after Thor. I think Minions will will overshadow that pretty strongly. And then we look at you know maybe some some mid-tier films like Beast in August. That, that could have some upside, uh, but it's also going to be opening kind of at that point that we've talked about where at the end of summer, moviegoers start to focus on getting their final vacations in. So a lot of these movies just already have mixed expectations for for practical reasons like that well sean thank you for those insights we appreciate it and to our listeners you can find all of sean's insights on our website boxofficepro.com we have our weekend forecast which comes out every wednesday and our long-range forecast which comes out on friday sean thanks for joining us and we're back here with Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios. Russ, you're looking at the film world from the perspective of the consumer. You're looking at what moviegoers are paying attention to, what they are looking forward to. And of course, when we're talking about all these things, the MCU is probably on top of most moviegoers' minds. So let's use that as a jumping off point. Where's the MCU as we head into Thor Love and Thunder? In kind of a weird place. I think I even made this comparison on the box office podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about how like, you know, in in the old days, the the even numbered Star Trek movies were the good ones. And I feel like the odd numbered MCU phases are the good ones. I, I think the thing with where Marvel stands right now is the most successful aspects of Marvel have taken place when there was kind of a perceptible storyline or a perceptible through line, or if you will, an end game (laughs) on the horizon. And that's not the case with this one. Like the phase one, you knew was going to build to the Avengers phase three, you knew was going to build to this big showdown with Thanos. Marvel phase two was a little more shaky. And I feel like where Marvel's been at since the release of end game and Spider-Man far from home, it's similarly kind of shaky because you don't really know where it's going, which is weird because like in a lot of ways, that's fine, you know, just make good movies and that's cool. But, it, but, but it's, Marvel but it's has... not, yeah, it's not the pattern that they've built up. It's not what they've been. I mean, Correct. Dr. Strange opened this whole concept of the multiverse and now you're getting into Thor Love and Thunder, which is, I mean, I feel like you can kind of separate the MCU films into more like the earthbound the, ones or the, the cosmic, ones in space. Yeah. And totally. this is yeah. going to be Thor in space with Guardians of the Galaxy. It's, there's no indication of how it connects to what's come before. And in a lot of ways, I, I don't think it connects a lot. Um, and that's okay. But like you said, a, an expectation has been created. So the expectation with Marvel movies now is that they are building a, a larger narrative. And 
now several movies deep into this current set of Marvel movies, it's pretty difficult to discern what that narrative is. I have a couple of guesses, but I can tell you that Thor Love and Thunder isn't really going to clarify things. Uh, I think, you know, for that, we're going to have to wait for Black Panther 2 and more likely uh, the next Ant-Man movie. I was impressed with the first Avengers movie, how it pulled all these characters together and it kind of felt like everyone got their due and, you know, no one got the short end of the stick. But I mean, my God, that's a cakewalk compared to everything that's in the universe now. And I think yes. it, it also speaks to where I think the X-Men franchise went wrong for Fox. It just got too big. You got too deep into some of these superheroes where, as you mentioned, Rebecca, there's a fine line to balance an ensemble superhero cast. We're at a point now where half these guys you haven't even heard of anymore. I tried to sit through Doctor Strange and, and the Multiverse of, of Madness uh, a couple of weeks ago. There was a guy whose superpower was speaking. Like that was his Black superpower. Bolt, played by Anson Mount. I looked up his name and it's... Blackagar Boltagon, Daniel. Yeah, see, just how deep and ridiculous we're getting here is kind of like where Marvel has gone. And there's, it's difficult to maintain a, a big, easily, uh, there's no elevator pitch through line for what Marvel is doing right now. The pandemic certainly complicated things. You know, yeah. Black Widow is like, oh, right, that was a movie. <laughs> Shang-Chi, a relatively good movie, introduced a good character, but it's like, did that take place in this phase was that a previous phase so like what's going on there you know and then black panther is going to be its own issue because they've had to rewrite black panther multiple times that movie has been restructured more than once in part because it was initially you know obviously it was initially going to be a pretty straightforward black panther sequel then Chadwick Boseman dies. That changes everything. So suddenly Letitia Wright's character Shuri was going to be the centerpiece of Black Panther. Then Letitia Wright proved to be, let's say, not a team player from difficult the to work Disney with. perspective. Let's let's say that uh, yeah, difficult to so, involve in a in a major production with a lot of. Uh, strands going in many directions yeah and so there's no official word on this yet but everything that you hear about the black panther sequel is that it has been significantly reworked again i wouldn't be surprised if we find that uh it's really lupita nyong'o's character who is sort of the main through line at this point but we don't know and black panther's the next big marvel movie and we don't even know what it is about at this point we haven't less... seen a single second of footage in any nope. exhibition convention any disney any comic con it's rare to see such a high-profile film like this be shrouded under so much secrecy, even though we know there's a massive fan element involved. And this is, we have this on the calendar as one of the biggest films of the year, but we have no idea what to expect here. Uh, Russ, there are so many moving pieces here. There's superheroes no one's ever heard of. There's superheroes we have heard of, but we don't know who's going to be taking the, the mantle to be the next version of that superhero. I'm going to ask a question that was asked of me three, four years ago, and I answered it foolishly. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can't wait. Did Disney peak after Avengers Endgame? So after the Avengers uh, last couple of titles, is this going to get back to that level? Because I can tell you, I know there's super fans out there. I'm glad these movies bring in so many audiences from around the world. At a certain point, people are going to stop caring. I, I think that they are teetering on the edge of that precipice right now. Yes, because 
Well, it, these things are not contingent upon one another. So there's there's two things. A, there isn't a core through line. And B, there hasn't been the must-see movie. The way that the Avengers movies were, or maybe how Iron Man sort of built up to be. I can tell you, I'm glad that the Thor character is proven popular. I just don't see too much of an appeal to that character the way we've had with a Spider-Man in the past with an Iron Man. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen with Black Panther, as you mentioned, because I think that was the one character that you could really rely uh, moving forward. Obviously, there's been a change of plans there, you know, tragically, and there's going to be have to be a big, big pivot. I think like everyone else, I'm curious to see if there is a peak ahead of us, what that looks like, because I can't see the future of this as a cultural event, not since Spider-Man Far From Home. I think there are a couple of good contenders. Um, Guardians 3 is a good contender, in part because James Gunn has been very smart in keeping the Guardians movies as self-contained as possible. I think Thor and Love and Thunder follows that pattern, and it's not entirely a coincidence that the Guardians figure significantly in this movie, even though they're really just kind of a first act part of it. But I think that I think Thor Love and Thunder takes its cues most directly from James Gunn's Guardians movies. So I think there's a good chance that Guardians 3 could end up being a relatively significant event for Marvel. That said, at that point, it will have been six years since the last Guardians standalone movie. Obviously, they have figured into other things like, uh, you know, Avengers Endgame and Thor Love and Thunder, but it's like, that's a long wait between movies. So still, Gunn has been really smart. He crafts good emotional arcs for these movies. I can see Guardians working in a way that, like, maybe something else is going to struggle to succeed at. Um, beyond that, I think that the biggest and brightest hope that, that Marvel has is the X-Men. And consequently, I think that they're being very smart and not rushing it. But, you know, you can easily see that if Marvel can really nail their approach to the X-Men, that that might be the next big cultural moment. You know, I'd love to say that Fantastic Four is going to be that, but we've already seen Fantastic Four fail on the big screen multiple times. Uh, it's very difficult to get right. So again, if they can nail it, awesome. But that is a tough one to crack. You know, the X-Men conversation, I think, is fascinating because on, on one hand, I think the social context for that series of narratives is ripe here in the United States. I think right now we're in a place socially, culturally in the United States where these X-Men narratives could probably connect with the culture in a way that I think a super space adventure maybe won't really resonate right now. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think it's going to be hard to go back and press the reset button on a character like Wolverine uh, that we associate so closely with Hugh Jackman. And that's going to be something that has to happen. So a lot of big question marks as we look at the future of the MCU and how Disney retains its box office supremacy through these IPs. I, I got to say, in a way, Disney isn't doing themselves any favors theatrically by placing so much emphasis on Disney+. Plus. It's become increasingly clear that if you really want to, you can pretty much experience the MCU on Disney Plus, which is probably good for Disney's subscriber numbers, but isn't good for generating what you accurately describe as a cultural moment. You know, you don't get the cultural effect of Black Panther from a Disney Plus release. You just don't. I mean, it's so essential to launching the franchise to, to really gain that momentum. I mean, I feel like Star Wars has gone a bit fallow at this point, which 
pains yeah. my heart to say. I can certainly tell you, I, I'm a huge Ewan McGregor fan. I love watching the guy. I watched a couple episodes of Obi-Wan and was like, I'm good. I don't need to spend another five hours on this. I'm fine. You know, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm here for weirdness. I like, I, I want to see bizarro alternate metaverse versions of characters that I know being, you know, summarily destroyed by another character who I know, uh, you know, and Dr. Strange was still a pretty tough watch for me. I just couldn't really connect with it. And yeah, I think Marvel has a lot of stuff to figure out. And, and unfortunately, a lot of what they have to figure out is, is a way out of a maze that they've built around themselves. Close up this conversation, Russ, uh, apart from the MCU, what do you think can appeal to audiences this summer? I mean, what are you looking at as you're building editorial plans, as you're building coverage, movies that seem to have real potential with audiences, maybe that aren't related nope. to big IPs? I mean, nope is the is the, the obvious answer to that question, but it's the correct answer to that question as well. Uh, you know, Jordan Peele has proven to be somebody who can deliver certain types of ideas and spectacle uh, with nope he is explicitly trying to create a sort of spectacle i mean it's it's this generation's uh, you know it's this is a weird way to put it and but playing into the the old newsweek cover uh you know you had spielberg's close encounters you had m night Shyamalan signs and now you have jordan peele uh you know touching on spielberg with nope and i mean you know he's explicitly making the sort of movie that plays well on the big screen and I love him for it that that's the next big movie I think that's a movie that has the potential to be a sort of cultural moment and and hopefully hopefully it can it can do that Russ thank you so much for joining us here on the box office podcast up next we've got April Wright the director of back to the drive-in Rebecca Polly interviews the filmmaker coming up next here on the box office podcast April, thanks so much for joining us today. I, again, I told you this uh, before we started, but I really uh, enjoyed the, the documentary. It made me want to go to a drive-in like right now, but I don't have a car, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I keep talking to people about it and it, it, the title is so, I'm so happy with the title because it's like during the pandemic, people went back to the drive-in. I went mm -hmm. back to the drive-in to make a second documentary. And now that movies are coming, you know, more movies are coming from the studios. Don't forget about the drive-ins. Everybody needs to keep going back to the drive-in. Right. <laughs> so it's like kind of the message is built into the title. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the very first intertitle card on the film reflects the fact that there is this narrative that, oh my gosh, drive-ins are doing great. It's a boom period for drive-ins. Right, they're printing money. <laughs> it takes a lot of struggle for them to maintain. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's it's just a it's a hustle. They're all family owned, even if they're companies, they're family owned companies. And um, yeah, they just really care. They have a passion for what they provide to the community. And mm -hmm. um, I think that's what, what really shined through, despite all the different types of troubles that the industry is facing right now. Um, mm -hmm. They seem very determined to make sure that their drive-ins stay alive and stay in their community. So uh, that message, you know, is just so inspiring. You've done documentaries on the exhibition business, the exhibition community before, mostly from a historical standpoint. You had your first documentary on like the history of drive-ins and then the documentary on movie palaces. Um, what led you to do a documentary that focuses on drive-ins now versus something historical? Well, I wanted to do a second drive-in documentary because 
I was still seeing a gradual decline in the numbers. And I did want to, instead of showing the history, which I already did in the in um, Going Attractions, the definitive story of the American Drive-In movie, um, <laughs> long title. But I had shown the whole history there, but I, I wanted to really profile the owners. I wanted to show this topic that they, you know, that they have to keep their places going, keep them alive, and that it's important for people to make it a regular habit, as the old advertisements used to say. When you go to a drive-in, you have to support the snack bar. Um, all these things are important. If you want to keep them around, you have to go to them. And so I wanted to show that. I wanted to bring some attention on drive-ins. And this was all before the pandemic hit. <laughs> oh, I actually went to, Yeah, I know, right? I actually went to the um, drive-in owners conference down in Florida in February of 2020, and I said I wanted to make this documentary and Brad Pitt had just won the Oscars and he was talking about how he grew up going to drive-ins and we were trying to think, you know, how, how could we leverage that? And we were just, you know, trying to figure out how to bring attention on drive-ins. And, and I also, I mean, this is kind of a funny thing, but also I wanted to make a second drive-in documentary because of drones, because we have drones now. <laughs> and when I made the first one, you know, it would first the of all. Drone photography I, I, was so neat to see the drive-in. Thank you. That and I, I did all that myself. I'm a drone pilot. <laughs> I, I got a drone and learned how to fly it and how to do all that. And so, yeah, the first one, I, I shot it so long ago. It was shot standard def. And by the time it was done, I had to up-res it to high def. And so this film, I could shoot it all in 4K, and I could get all that drone cinematography, which I wish I could have had, because it definitely gives the perspective on the drive-in. So that you know, that's a big part of this new film, is being able to see them from that different angle that you wouldn't mm -hmm. normally see. Um, so those were the things, just really wanting to show the people, show how hard they work to keep their drive-ins going, and then mm -hmm. you know the fact that I could get you know, beautiful imagery to show what they look like that I couldn't get when I made my last film. <laughs> yeah, I really loved you, you get a sense of uh, historical continuity through the film, I guess, with drive-ins. I mean, how it's a connection to the past. I mean, the showmanship of it. Yeah. And, and for me, there is an element of you might call it like casting in a way, because, you know, for all of my films, I'm always thinking about who can provide different points of view and different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so for this film in particular, I tried to choose all different types of drive-ins in different states, in different you know rural areas or city areas, some that had a single screen, some that had up to seven screens, mm -hmm. some that the owner just opened it three weeks before I got there the, at the Quasar in Nebraska, mm -hmm. um, and then some that had owned it for 37 years, like Jennifer at the Brazos, who was ready to sell her drive-in, and she's still looking for a buyer. And so all these different sizes, types, you know, that have been around for years, like the Benjis, the Wellfleet have been around for years, just all these different types, all these different points of view. And yet the story was the same at the end of the day. They, they're all the same. They're all dealing with the same things, even though they're completely different. I mean, and they all seem to have, I mean, even the ones that have sold or are looking to sell, there's a sense of hopefulness that they seem they kind of universally expressed throughout the documentary, like they firmly believe, yeah, we're not going anywhere. The drive-in culture is, is staying. And I found that really lovely. Yeah, especially now when, you know, not only pandemic, but I think pandemic put the focus on us staying home and streaming. 
And it really gave the studios an opportunity to test out what happens if we do day and date or if we don't put it in theaters at all. And it seems like the lesson learned is that the theatrical piece is really the hub of the industry and so critical. And and now we're seeing this summer, everybody's, you know, doing releases and we just had Top Gun break all the records. And so I think people are realizing how important the theatrical component is. But yeah, there certainly was a was a time during the pandemic where people were questioning, is it going to die? And when you talk to all of the people, you see all the people in this documentary, despite the struggles, they are vested in their drive-ins and in this industry. And they're very, you know, pushing through. They're very confident um, that they're going to have a good season and that this is going to stay alive. But people need to leave their houses and go and support them. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully we'll do our part. Hopefully the public, the communities and the people and the families Mm -hmm. will do their part and get out to these places and support them and help bring the industry back to where it needs to be. Well, and that's the thing about drive-ins too, that where they're somewhat unique to indoor theaters that when you go to a drive-in, you can talk to the people with you and you can have this little bit more of a communal experience. And I always say you create a memory. You know, when you're streaming at home, it all blends together. When you go to a movie palace, when you go to any theater, but especially when you go to a venue like a drive-in, it really creates a good memory about the people you were with. And and when I talk to people, they'll remember what they ate, what they saw, what it smelled, you know, like it's, it'd be, it's a very vivid memory for people when they go to drive-ins. So back to the drive-in is, uh, is screening or depending on when this podcast episode uh, goes out, will have screened um, at drive-in day on June 8th. Is that June 9th? June 6th. June 6th, yeah, so June, June 6th is, um, has been called drive-in day for years. That's the date the very first drive-in opened in Camden, New Jersey in 1933. Oh, that. Yeah, so that's when the first one opened. The first one that got patented and gets credit for being the first one. Um, Opened June 6th, 1933 in Camden, New Jersey. So this year is the 89th anniversary of the drive-in. And so we're doing a special uh, advanced screening on drive-in screens only on June 6th just to kick off the film. And then drive-ins will be able to play it all summer. And then we're doing the bigger theatrical release, which will include indoors and drive-ins on August 12th. So I know obviously August 12th is a ways away and I'm sure that the distribution plans are still being worked on. But for people who want to see the film, I mean, where can they go online or, or anywhere to find out uh, where it's playing near them? Uh, well, I have back to the drivein.com website, and it actually mm-hmm. points to my Going Attractions website. So you can see the trailer on there. And once we have the broader release plans, it will be on my website. And of course, social media will push it out. Yeah, we're still working on all the details. So the streaming won't happen till the fall. But we're definitely doing the full, broader theatrical August 12th. That was kind of the best. The summer has so many great releases <laughs> that yeah. I wanted to stay away from. I wanted to stay away from those and let the drive-ins, you know, get get, get, get all the their, money get all their customers yeah. in for all these, bit, you know, for Lightyear and Jurassic World and mm-hmm. all these things. So by the time you get to August, um, Bullet Train is coming out on August 5th, and then I'll be coming out August 12th, and that'll be getting towards the end of the standard drive-in season, although a lot of them stay open later and sometimes year-round. 
for people who are just just find the industry interesting, especially drive-ins, which hopefully is everyone listening to this podcast. But it was just every few minutes, it was like, oh yeah, that thing, and you're complaining about people not knowing how to turn their lights off, and oh, they should just hand out <laughs> That's a, a big how to do. <laughs> It's just, it was, it's a real, I really recommend that like that people watch this because it's just a really interesting, entertaining, if there's a, you know, drive-ins or hardtop theaters who want to program this movie, how could they get in touch with you? Oh, just, um, they can email me directly going attractions at gmail.com, um, is the best way to, to just get in touch with me, but I'll be doing outreach to, you know, as many chains and, and places as I can. Yeah, it's a good, like what you just said, it's kind of like we go to drive-ins, we go to theaters, but sometimes you don't think of all the things happening behind the scenes. And so this does go a little bit behind the curtain to show what they're doing, what they're thinking about. The fact that they get to the drive-ins, you know, at three or four in the afternoon to start preparing, people don't think about that, that you know, they're there for hours before anybody even shows up getting ready for the night and how late they are at the end of the night and how, you know, once the movie or sometimes the second movie's on screen after they have an intermission, they can finally take a little breather at, you know, one or two in the morning and, you know, mm-hmm. how they're tracking the weather all night. We showed a couple times where they're looking at, you know, the computer to see the weather patterns. Is the rain going to hit them? Just all these things that you never think about. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, when you were just talking, it also made me think, it, I, I think drive-ins are great for the industry because they also provide a different way to see a movie. Because I've seen so many people that I know that are like, okay, I already saw Top Gun in a multiplex or on an IMAX screen. They're like, now I want to go see it at a drive-in. I want to have that mm-hmm. experience because they know the film will feel different if they see it at a drive-in and that that's a different type of memory and experience that you can have. So I think it helps with repeat views if you have drive-ins in your area because people will want to, you know, a lot of movies they'll want to experience both ways. So so again, uh, back to the drivein.com uh, for anyone who wants to find out more information on the film, uh, get in touch with April, watch the trailer. Um, thanks so much for, for speaking to me. I love to nerd out with people about cinemas and, uh, and, and, uh, you really know your stuff, so there's no one better to do it with, really. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I, I hope people see this film. Everybody who's seen it so far, they seem to really enjoy it, and they seem to learn things that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And like and like I said, the resilience of people. Like, it's very much just sort of the human side of it to realize, you know, how resilient these drive-in owners are and how much they care about it, how much passion they have for the families in the communities that they are serving and, and how determined they are to make sure that they stick around. And that's it for this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thank you to this week's guest, April Wright, and thank you to our co-hosts, Rebecca Polly, Sean Robbins, and Russ Fisher. We'll be back next week for another episode on Thursday. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.